Tasmania is the full stop at the bottom of the world, and we live on an island of stories. For years now, the Tamer Valley Writers' Festival has celebrated our great thinkers, writers and readers, and now we're excited to share these insights globally. I'm Lyndon Rigol, and throughout this series, my colleague Annie Warburton and I will be talking to writers, playwrights, comedians, poets, editors, and all of those who share a love of the written word, right here on the Tamer Valley Writers' Festival podcast. Dr. Danielle Wood is a senior lecturer for the University of Tasmania and a writer of astonishing diversity. Her transformation across various genres of fiction and non-fiction, short stories and novels, or writing for children and adults is perhaps matched only by her reinvention of self, as she hops seemingly effortlessly from one identity to another, including as one half with Heather Rose of Angelica Banks, the author of the Tuesday McGillicuddy Adventures, and as Minnie Dark, the woman behind Starcrossed and her latest release, The Lost Love Song. The Lost Love Song is a novel that playfully jumps across a number of strands of narrative, with one common thread flowing beneath them, a song composed by classical pianist Diana Clare for her fiancé, Ari. Exploring the power of music in a way that is by turns devastating, playful and soul-feeding, Wood weaves the novel's various perspectives together as different instruments in a beautiful symphony, and the result is heartwarmingly executed with her trademark playful lyrical style. Today, I talk to Danielle about the art of the love story, her many secret lives, and how the island she calls home feeds her work. Dr. Danielle Wood, thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure, Lyndon. Um, so I'd like to start with the invention of Mini Dark, and I would love to talk about your various personas, because you've got more than one that you write under, where they came from and why Minnie and who is Minnie? Well, my first foray into having a pseudonym was when I was working with Heather Rose and we write together as someone called Angelica Banks. So the reason that pseudonym happened was because we didn't really want to have two author names on the covers of our books. It just felt a bit clunky. So we invented this third person called Angelica Banks. And that was a lot of fun. And so I suppose I could tell you if I wanted to that I enjoyed being Angelica Banks so much that then I had to create another persona for myself and that's how Minnie came about. But I think if I'm just going to be really truthful with you, um, I, I actually really like having a pseudonym and I think that actually the author of a book or the, the writer of a particular book is the very first thing I like to invent. So if I really had my way, I'd probably become a completely different person every time I started a new book. And how deep does that transformation go? Do you, do you feel like a different person when you were writing a mini dark book versus an Angelica Banks book versus a Danielle Wood book? I almost have a different colour palette in my mind. Uh, so when I'm writing as myself, I think I'm writing you know, a beautiful Tasmanian palette of creamy coloured sand and olive green, eucalypt green and imagine sort of beautiful steel coloured Tasmanian water. That's the sort of palette I imagine I write in as myself. And um, Minnie probably writes in a more sort of primary coloured palette. And obviously there's a difference here between writing as myself where I tend to write more literary fiction and writing as Minnie Dark where I'm writing more commercial fiction. But it would be a real mistake to think that uh, I do it to distance myself from this work because any book that you write, whether it's a children's book, uh, a, a novel for adults, whether it's a commercial book or a literary book, any book you write is going to take your whole heart and soul. 
It's going to take everything you've got. It's going to take all your effort. There's no such thing as an easy book or not that I've discovered. If someone else can do things easily, well, good luck to them. But I haven't found a way, you know, and I've written in a number of genres and all I've discovered that it is that every book takes your whole heart and soul. And so, and so when was the moment when you decided it was mini dark for at first Starcrossed? When was the moment when her name came to you and when that identity came to you? So as Danielle Wood, I've written The Alphabet of Light and Dark, Rosie Little's Cautionary Tales for Girls, Mother's Grimm um, and Housewife Superstar. And I've always, well, not always, I'd had the idea for Starcrossed in my head for about 22 years. Uh, I'd been working as a, a journalist in a small newspaper when the idea for Starcrossed came to me and I'd held it in my brain for two decades. And then when I thought, you're going to have to write this book or stop thinking about it, one or the other, I realised it was so radically different to everything I'd written as myself. And at first, when I thought, I'll write it under a pseudonym, at first I thought, I could really do an Elena Ferrante, you know? I could really be invisible here. And my original plan was to just write the book and send it out into the world and not have to be the public face of Mini Dark, just send it out. Well, that just was really naive. Um, whoever Elena Ferrante really is, well, she's obviously incredibly good, or he or they are really good at the Secrecy Act, because from the get-go, all the publishers wanted me to be the public face of the book, and there was really no way of avoiding it. And so how much do you inhabit that persona of Minnie Dark? Is she someone that I could interview? Because I, I know that you have your stamp when you sign books, but how deep do the layers of Minnie Dark go? I think the main place Minnie Dark really comes out is at the writing desk. I think it's really the voice on the page. Um, Perhaps I have a little bit of a mini dark wardrobe and a few accoutrements, but I don't think um, I don't think I, I don't think I really actually have separate personas in life. I think my grandfather used to say, "Same man, different plumage." So I think that's I think that's me. Same same writer, different plumage. I'm also interested in the fact that your reinvention goes beyond just names. You have written across so many genres and styles, including non-fiction with your Marjorie Bly books, children's as you've mentioned, do stories come to you with a genre or do they do? Can you talk a bit about how you know when you're writing for a particular audience? Oh, that's such a great question, but for some reason it feels really hard to answer. Can I tell you about that? I think that ideas come so encapsulated so at the moment I'm working on uh, a book of my own and it's, um, it's a book about Lake Pedder. And so it, it immediately comes in that sort of Tasmanian palette. It's a book about, it's set in, in this reality. Uh, so I guess that's one thing perhaps setting is really important. So that's set in the real world as we know it. Whereas the mini dark books, they're set in some kind of slightly tangential reality. Everything's a little bit airbrushed in a mini dark book, really. Um, and you're right, I have written across a, a lot of genres. The children's books, again, have sort of a different world that they inhabit. Um, in the future, I'd like to have a tilt at writing fantasy. So I, I'm not a publisher's dream in that I keep doing the same thing over and over. I keep doing different things. 
that's partly because I love lots of different things. I read very widely and I still love children's books. I like YA books. And I guess anything I really love to read, at some point I'm probably going to want to have a go at writing. Probably safely say I'll never write a horror story. Don't like reading them. I'm easily scared. Um, and I'll probably write, never write a crime book because I'm, it's just not an interest of mine particularly. I would read a crime book, but it wouldn't be my go-to. And there's so much to read. And do you ever resist that pigeonholing? Is there a part of you that goes, no, don't tell me to write another mini dark. Don't tell me to write another story of this particular genre because I want to, I want to push against boundaries? At the moment, I've still got enough ideas in, the, in that world of, of mini darks to be going on with. But if they ran out, I'd just stop. Um, but unfortunately, ideas are not the problem. Uh, the problem is having time to get all the ideas on paper. And I wish I was faster um, as a writer because I'm fussy about sentences. And you know, some people write and write and write and throw things out. I inch forward. So um, I just wish I had some magical way, you know, like Dumbledore's wand, you know, when he just sucks out his memories and puts them in, the, in his pool of water. If I could just, you know, get novels out of my head somehow, that would be brilliant. So can you talk a bit about your writing routine and, and how the process of a novel comes about? And for example, with the Lost Love Song, how, how long is that as a process? Uh, that's the quickest book I've written. Um, I wrote it in about a year. I wrote the first draft in six months, which was to deadline, and then read it and went, it's not right. And so I had to use up all of my editing time and even my proofreading time to actually rewrite the novel. And then the editing and proofreading time was just squeezed down. So it is actually lucky that I write in such a fussy way because we could afford to squeeze at that end. Um, but yeah, rewriting an entire novel in four months. And are you, are you comfortable talking about what went wrong? What, what, did, what was it that you wanted yeah, to fix? Yeah, I can actually talk about what went wrong. It's quite simple, really. Um, I, I was trying for a sleepless in Seattle story where the whole story is about two people meeting right at the end. Uh, and so I did that. Uh, so you know a little bit about the story. Two people are on a, on a trajectory to meet and I spent the whole book putting obstacles in their way and drawing out the moment of their meeting by which time you would obviously know, as you know in Sleepless in Seattle, that. Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks are just meant to be together, yeah. Uh, and when I read it after, you know, in the first draft, I went, I just wrote the first third of the novel. I, I dragged out the first third of the novel into an entire novel. Actually, I need to completely truncate that into the first third and then write the other two thirds. And that's, what, yeah, that's exactly what you did. So, yeah. yeah. Um, with the Lost Love Song, mm -hmm. with Starcross, mm -hmm. it feels like there's a, a concept that's at the heart of each of them that you're kind of using to frame everything else that happens, um, be it astrology, be it music. Is that where 
writing starts for you with some big, broader idea or does it start with something a little bit smaller and closer to home? You're absolutely right that that's where it started with those two books. Right. Uh, so, so far that's Minnie Dark's trademark. Yeah. But it won't be for her next book. Uh, she's not going to start with a concept for her next book because it's really hard <laughs> starting with a concept. <laughs> so actually next book I'm going to start with character and situation and go from there. Um, next mini dark book. Um, but there have been other things of mine that have started with a concept. There's a short story of mine that's published in Deep South and it's called None of the Above. And it just came from the idea that I'd read three wildly different estimates of the length of the Tasmanian coastline. And I thought, how could they be so different? And then I thought, well, it depends on your measuring methodology, doesn't it? Because if you went around every little rock, it would be much longer than if you just took a curve. And if you're measuring a coastline, how far up do you go into rivers? Because if you went up every river and then into every creek, then the coastline would be virtually infinite, wouldn't it? So there was just this idea, you can't measure the Tasmanian coastline. That was the idea. And I thought, I want to write a story about that, but now I'm going to need all the characters around all of that. So sometimes it's a concept, other times it's character and situation. One of the other things that's really interesting about this book in particular is it's not entirely happy. <laughs> There's, there are some real moments of darkness which have come as a shock to a number of readers, including myself. How do you strike a balance? When do you know in a mini dark book to add that little bit more dark? <laughs> um, I do know that I was taking a massive risk with um, the, the sadness in the book and where I placed it and what I did. I know that was a huge risk. So I had to work out if I could pull that off. Um, and I just decided to, to go for it, really. I just tried to be truthful about emotions. And I think um, it's, it's, not, it's not by any stretch of the imagination a, a bleak book. There's a lot of joy in there as well. But just about any life is going to have that balance of sadness and happiness. So I don't, I, I, think, it's, I think it's quite a truthful book, probably. Absolutely. One of the things that I've noted with the Lost Love Song, having been in a book club that's read the Lost Love mm -hmm. Song, is that a, a big debate started about women's fiction and romance fiction and what is it appropriate to call this book and does it cut people out to call it a particular type of book? Do you have any thoughts on, on romance and this idea of women's fiction as a genre and how comfortable you are with those labels? Does it m make you cringe a little bit? Um, Something that I have learned from the process of becoming Mini Dark and writing these two books is that I think everything I know about romantic comedy or romance actually comes from the movies rather than from reading romances. So if you ask me what my biggest influences are, there'd be movies like Love Actually and Amelie. Um, so I love sort of quirky love stories on screen. You know, I love When Harry Met Sally and you know, I reference Sleepless in Seattle, Mindigo. It's not one of my favourites, but, you know, I've watched it. Um, so I think there's more scope within 
uh, romantic comedies or romances as in terms of movies, you can do quite a lot and quite a lot of different things. So I didn't feel like it was this heavily um, formulaic genre. I just love story, right? I mean, Jane Austen's books are love stories at one level. Of course, they do a whole heap more than that as well. So I didn't feel like in writing a love story, I was necessarily putting myself in some kind of box. I reckon the love story is the great human story. Uh, and just about any kind of book that you read has got love of some sort in it. I mean, we're all obsessed with love, aren't we? So it doesn't feel like a small category to me. It actually feels like a massive category to me. But having written these two romance novels, I've been sort of fascinated by the, um, by the fact that it's been picked up by romance blogs or people who write about romances. And they've said, hmm, these are, these are very unusual. These are not your ordinary romance. These are not your classic romance. This is, she's doing something different here. Um, but I wasn't sort of setting out to do something different. I was just setting out to do what I thought needed to be done and it was only later I realised there was some kind of template that I was ignoring or that didn't know existed or something. Like I invented a dish that everybody's cooked like this for years. It's just I didn't know everybody else cooked it like that. <laughs> Have any of the responses to Minnie's work surprised you? I think I get a little bit annoyed with those... Um, that feedback when people say, oh, it's not what I expected. I, I just get a little bit irked at that as a, as a piece of feedback because I, I don't think I ever critique a book on the basis of, well, it's not what I expected. I think I read a book and then I try to interpret it or understand it on its own terms. Um, so I think one of the things you learn about writing into a genre is that there are going to be this set of readers who've got some expectation about tropes or plot points that you'll hit or, or whatever. Um, and so possibly I'm a tiny bit annoyed by, by that kind of expectation that I will do certain things. I, I might or I might not. I suppose that's all part of you reinventing the dish, isn't it? Is that yeah. They think they've ordered something, but it might actually be nice for them to see yeah. what else it could be. Yeah. yeah. Um, this novel is heavily centred around music. Now, Minnie, in her biography, claims not to play music. Is that that's true of you? That's, yeah, <laughs> just checking. <laughs> it's always a good idea. <laughs> and yet it's so filled with references to music and technical details about music how did you accommodate for your lack of musicality as a writer who wanted to explore musical ideas? So, you know, people have regrets in their life, right? I have three. One is that I never actually learned to play a musical instrument. One is that I didn't learn another language. And the other is that I was living in Mosman Park when uh, Rose Hancock had a garage sale and I didn't know it was on. So they're my three regrets in life. Um, now, as for the not learning to play a musical instrument, this is nobody's fault but my own. My poor mother paid for me to go to violin lessons, piano lessons, cello, flute. I just never practised. I just wasn't disciplined about it. Um, but I am, I am very musical. I love 
music. I, I was for a brief time in my life a singer in a small band. We were dreadful, but we had a lot of fun. Um, so I, I love music deeply. My father is a person who doesn't really talk about his emotions very much, but he, I can always tell how he's feeling. Like his emotional barometer is the music that he puts on. So when I was a little girl, uh, mum and dad used to have these dinner parties and they used to stay up so late. And everyone would leave at like two or three in the morning and then my dad would do the dishes. But he would crank the Pink Floyd like in the middle of the night while he's doing the dishes. And so I'd be lying there in my bed, you know, and he'd be playing lunatic is on the grass. You know, I'd be in my bed thinking, oh my God, the lunatic's on the grass. Um, or it could be deep purple or whatever. I've always learned to navigate emotion through music. Um, if I need to cry, there are certain songs I'll put on and just make myself cry. If I need to do housework, there are certain songs I'll put on to make it possible to, you know, get up the energy to do the housework. So I think um, you use music all the time for so many things in terms of regulating your emotions or inspiring yourself. And of course, music is just incredibly attached to love. So it seemed like a really obvious structure for me. When it comes to the technical detail about music, I did know a little bit. Uh, I knew enough to know what I didn't know. And I have an over-the-back fence neighbour who's um, a, a clarinet player and uh, she does some composition and she's also just whip smart. And so I threw my sort of slightly crazy ideas at her and she went, no, you haven't quite got it, but if you were to talk about it like this, then it would make sense. So I ran a lot past my, my very clever neighbour. An amazing resource to have just over the fence. Mm. There's also a playlist at the back of the book that's attached to various characters and moments. I'm intrigued by the process of compiling the playlist and whether, we, whether you were searching for songs as you wrote do you listen to music while you write or was that something that emerged before or after the process of actually putting the novel together? I don't listen to music while I'm actually writing. I can't listen to anything while I'm writing. Um, if I'm deep in writing and then I get in the car, I can't listen to an audiobook. Sometimes I can't even put on the radio. It's like anything that comes in is fighting with the book that's already in my head. Um, but these were the sorts of songs that were in my life at the time that this book was, was written. These were the songs that were on high rotation on my car stereo or whatever. Um, so when I thought about the playlist afterwards, I thought, okay, what was I listening to during the writing of this book? What kinds of songs went into the writing of this book? But there were also times um, during the writing of it where I was thinking about what music to put in the, in the book. Also in recent news, people are talking about Starcrossed as a potential film. Are well, you able to update us on that and where that's sitting at the moment? Yeah, look, the, the screen rights sold very quickly to a company called Stampede. And I've always been really, really circumspect about its chances because film is cruelly uncertain business. And the concept was to, um, to turn it into a six-part TV series. And um, a script writer was commissioned, an Australian script writer, and um, a, a script has been written and a treatment's been written, but so far they just haven't managed to find the money to put it in production. And about the time when they were really getting serious for that was March 2020. So 
bad time to be trying to get a screen project off the ground. So it's still hanging around in limbo. I don't know whether it will ever happen or not, but it would have been nice. And what about your own projects, your own writing? What, what's upcoming for you? Well, I'm working on a novel about Lake Petter. And this has been an, another project that's been in my mind for quite a while. I was born in 1972, which is the year that the original Lake Petter was inundated. So while I was busy um, being gestated and being born, Lake Petter was flooding. So obviously, I've never seen the real Lake Petter, but it's lodged itself in my imagination. I was a child when the Franklin Dams debate was happening and uh, I got quite passionately interested in that as, as a young kid. And I was always aware of this previous debate about Lake Pedder and so I've always kind of, you know, paid attention when things have come past my notice about Lake Pedder and I've got more and more interested in it as the years go by. And um, 2022 will be the 50th anniversary of the uh, damming of, um, of the two rivers that caused the impoundment. And it's also the first year of... Um, or the second year of the United Nations decade of ecosystem restoration. So it's a big moment. So I think the time is right for a novel about Lake Pedder. There's been lots and lots of non-fiction, but not a novel. Well, on that subject, Tasmania plays a minor role in the Lost Love Song, an important role, but a minor role. Some of your work is very deeply Tasmanian. How important is Tasmania to you as a writer and to, and to your creativity, would you say? Uh, crucial. I'm um, deeply Tasmanian. I left here for three years to go to Western Australia and do my PhD, but other than that, I've always lived here. I think I grew up, like a lot of kids of my generation, thinking that in order to be successful at anything, you had to leave. That was a very strong idea as I was growing up. So had to go at least to Melbourne or Sydney, but more likely London or New York if you were actually going to do anything successful. But um, I'm an only child. I'm very close to my parents. I love where I live. And somehow it never actually seemed sensible to leave. I wanted to live here. And being a writer is one of, uh, one of the things that you can do pretty much anywhere. And this is such a wonderful place to be a writer, partly because we have brilliant, brilliant bookshops, uh, partly because we have an amazing readership, people who want to read about this island, and um, partly because we have this shared lexicon of stories. So we all grow up in this environment of knowing this particular set of stories, our kind of foundational stories. And... Of course, you can, you know, and Lake Petter's one of those and Franklin Dam's one of those stories. We all know those tales and we're never going to exhaust them. We're always going to be looking at them from another angle and another angle and another angle. And that's one of the beautiful things too about writing here and being a writer here is you're entering this conversation. So where a writer like Nan Chauncey might have said something about something and Christopher Koch has answered and then... You know, Peter Conrad had something to say about it and then Richard Flanagan had something to say about it and then Robbie Arnott's had something to say about it. And so you, you're all having a conversation, um, you know, across genres, across texts, across years. Um, and I, I love all those little beautiful little intersections and um, it's nice to feel part of something. You're also a, 
senior lecturer in English at the University of Tasmania. So presumably some of the next voices to join that conversation are under your tutelage, if they're lucky. What advice do you have for those people who want to join this literary landscape in Tasmania? Well, I taught you, Linda. You did, and fantastically. <laughs> so I don't know, what advice did I have? <laughs> um, you gave me lots of great technical advice, but also, I mean, we had a, we had a unit all about writing Tasmania and trying to capture, capture the Tasmanian spirit. And I can remember, you know, lots of the writers that you were talking about, and Peter Conrad is one example who is not always positive in his representation of Tasmania, and that was really shocking. Mm. Uh, but I think it's so important that we hold on to our island and share our island. That's one of the messages that I got. And I think yeah. writers like you, um, writers like Richard Flanagan, have proven that the world, for some strange reason, actually does hear about this tiny little spot down the bottom and they will listen even if they've never been here, yeah. which is kind of exciting. I mean, one of the joys of teaching is that, you know, people like you, like Robbie Arnott, like Erin Hortle, like Kate Krumink, um, turn up in my classroom and, you know, I allegedly teach you. But really, my job is to enthuse and encourage and um, guide and, and celebrate what you can already do and, and hope that you're all going to go and do, you know, more exciting things. Um, and I... <laughs> I, I've been teaching there for 17 years, I realised the other day, but I still feel like a total beginner because I'm always learning too. I'm always learning better ways to teach things. Every year I change the way I teach because I think I'm, I've got a new idea about how it might be done or a better way to, to communicate some particular idea. But some things stay the same and I think one of the things that's at the bottom of my writing, teaching writing practice is the idea that Writing is a combination of your own unique way that you see the world and your facility to control language in order to be able to convey that vision to other people. And you've got to be able to actually work on both halves of that equation. So I hear a lot of criticism about creative writing classes that they turn out kind of cookie cutter stories. But I've always encouraged people to write the story that only they can tell and then try to get their use of language to be equal to sending that out into the world. The other thing that's important is it is a writing course. Storytelling is one thing and there are a million ways to tell stories. You can tell stories through filmmaking, visual art, mime, maybe even cake decorating, I don't know. Um, million ways to tell stories but our classes are actually about writing so if you're going to choose writing as your way of telling stories then you need to have respect for language and so you'll probably remember there were things I was fussy about with grammar. Commas splices. Yeah I was a little bit <laughs> fanatical. <laughs> uh, so that's the other thing is that I still feel it's worth fighting for punctuation and grammar and beautiful writing which doesn't mean elaborate writing necessarily, but beautiful, crisp, clear writing because, um, you know, you, you really have to craft language to say precisely what you mean. You can say vaguely what you mean quite easily, but if you want to say something very precisely, you're going to need precise language to do it. You've already talked about how that is an obsession of yours in your own writing. 
you ever find it hard to let go? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you know when a book is done and at this time, how did you know when the Lost Love Song was done and it was time to say goodbye and let it live, mm. even maybe if there was something that might not be perfect? Well, there was um, a deadline, which is always helpful um, for getting people to let go of things. Um, I should confess, I should love the editing process. You know, I, I love it when I get back um, manuscripts from an editor and they've fussily picked over my sentences and picked up things that I haven't seen or suggested improvements. So um, I'm absolutely in my happy place by the time I'm copy editing or proofreading. That's, that's way easier than creating the world from scratch. So yeah, I do sometimes find it a little bit hard to let go, but um, I, the place I feel I really feel that is at the beginning. It's when I'm creating it. Um, I do liken my process a little bit to pouring concrete walls. I don't know if you know of these kinds of walls. There are some of them up at Chauncey Vale. So someone's come along with a, a wooden form and they've poured concrete until it's just like about that high. And then you take the wooden form away and put it up again and then you pour the next line of concrete. Okay. And, and yeah. so you make this wall by pouring individual bits of concrete. My writing's like that because if I don't get the first one right, I actually just can't do the next one. So where I feel this anxiety about getting sentences right is right at the beginning because if I haven't got it right, I can't go on and I can't go on and I can't go on. So the copy editing and proofreading at the end, that's actually not the hard bit. It's back at the beginning. The building, yeah. Now, Danielle Wood in 2002 wins the Vogel Prize with a book called The Alphabet of Light and Dark. How has that person's world changed from there to now? Oh, that's such a great question. Uh, so I won the Vogel Prize with a novel called The Alphabet of Light and Dark, which when I look at it now, I'm very pleased with the sentence level writing. I think it's quite nice at the sentence level. I think it probably rambles a bit. Wouldn't be surprised if people get a bit bored here and there. Um, but I wrote that book as a PhD thesis when I had a boyfriend and a puppy. So then I had a baby and a husband and a dog, and that's when I wrote Rosie Little's Cautionary Tales for Girls. And then I had twins. Hmm. Yeah. So instead of just being a sensible human and just surrendering to my life of sitting on a couch breastfeeding for a year, I decided that the obvious thing to do was panic about the fact that I'd never write anything ever again and write non-fiction. So that's when I wrote Housewife Superstar, the book about Marjorie Bly. And the reason I was able to do that was because it's non-fiction. So even when I had infant twins, I could write as long as I was writing about something that already existed. I just didn't have it in me to create a world. Then I wrote Mother's Grimm in the bleak hours between 4am and 7am when my children were all very little because that was the only time I could be sure of being alone. Um, and the bleakness of the hour I think is very reflected in the stories. Um, and so my life has got increasingly complicated as I've added, you know, humans and responsibilities. And throughout it all I've taught. So. Um, I've had to be kind of bloody minded at some level to keep publishing and keep writing 
despite all of those other responsibilities. And a normal trajectory might have been, okay, you win the Vogel Prize, so then you write another novel and then, you know, it's in that same sort of world. Um, and maybe there was a, a pathway there that I didn't take. Instead, I took this other sort of strange, circuitous path that involved having a job and having children and still publishing and going through all these genres. So, yeah, maybe I didn't take the ladder, maybe I took the snake. Well, I'm really pleased that The Snake has brought you here and to this beautiful book. Congratulations and thank you for joining us on the Thanks. Tamer Valley Writers Festival podcast. Thank you so much, Lyndon. The Tamer Valley Writers Festival podcast series is sponsored by Events Tasmania, M Visuals and the award-winning Turner Steelhouse Distillery at Grindelwald, home of Three Cuts Gin, the perfect accompaniment to a night of reading. For more information on any books mentioned in this program, please visit Petrarch's, Launceston's major bookshop and a wonderful supporter of the Tamer Valley Writers' Festival.